This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hello, this is Jen Rubin, and this is Jen Rubin's Green Room. We talk on a Tuesday when the Middle East seems once again to be spinning out of control. Republicans in Congress once again are doing Donald Trump's business and doing their best to wreck a possible deal that would allow funding for Ukraine and also probably the most important border security deal in decades. And to top it all off, Republicans seem bent on nominating Donald Trump, who more often than not seems to be absolutely nuts. So, wow. Um, let's start with um, the Middle East. Um, we are confronted now with two big problems. One, the ongoing tragedy in Gaza, in which Israel must respond um, after the massacre on October 7. And yet we are confronted with horrendous scenes of great suffering and destruction. And there does not seem to be an immediate end in sight. Now, as we speak on Tuesday, there is some talk about an extended ceasefire in which more of the hostages would be released, and God willing, that will come to be. But even then, it's no guarantee that the fighting will end entirely, so long as Hamas remains, so long as there are tunnels, so long as there is bomb manufacturing in Gaza. Bibi Netanyahu may insist upon going on and on and on, despite the fact he is absolutely on thin ice with the Israeli public. Only about 15% of the population supports him any longer. So that is brewing. And meanwhile, as we sit here on Tuesday, the president is contemplating a major response to the last uh, attack on U.S. forces. We don't know what form that will take, but um, it's going to be another escalation of violence in the Middle East, which is becoming, as it usually is, the quagmire of most presidencies. We've had multiple presidents who wanted to pivot away from the Middle East. Well, they get sucked in despite their best efforts. Meanwhile, we do have an ongoing campaign, almost, maybe, on the Republican side. Nikki Haley is hanging in there, but she is actually doing something productive now. And that is, she is pointing the finger at Donald Trump and saying, he's nuts, he's unfit. And that has its benefits. It may not win her the nomination. In fact, it almost certainly will not. But it begins to penetrate the brains of Republicans, not the most MAGA of the bunch, but normal, kind of normie Republicans, fiscal conservatives, people who keep thinking that Donald Trump is better than the alternative. It begins to penetrate, and it 
gives Biden ammunition. And you are going to see increasingly him running against Trump's feebleness, mental defects, emotional unfitness. And that's going to become a bigger and bigger part of the campaign, I suspect, in particular because he's going to be in courtrooms more and more. And unlike the civil cases, in criminal cases, he can't just get up and walk out. That doesn't work. He's got to sit there. And you can imagine his mental state is becoming more and more frayed as time goes on. So that is a problem. And then Congress. I was thinking the other day, what in the world do these people say in 2024? Elect the people who, if they had their druthers, would have shut down the government, would have defaulted on the debt, who overwhelmingly voted against the infrastructure bill, and who now are set to wreck a deal on the border? Gosh, vote for us. It's absurd, but they are absurd. And I think for the first time, perhaps, they are confronted with the results of their own chaos-producing machine. They actually may have to pay a price. Unlike the budget deals, unlike the debt, when Democrats pulled their chestnuts out of the fire by keeping the government operating and by keeping the United States from losing its credit rating, here they are exposed. We're all going to see this is what they're all about. And to boot... They seem bent on going forward with one, if not two, impeachments. And I had to laugh the other day. Of course, they are trying to impeach Secretary Mayorkas um, because they don't like the border and because it's a good show for Fox. And you know who testified and said, you know, really, I don't think there's any basis for this. Jonathan Turley. Jonathan Turley was the guy who defended Trump in his impeachment. So if you can't get Jonathan Turley to go along, are you really going to convince anyone this is anything more than a complete farce? Of course not. And they're doing the Mayorkas impeachment, presumably, because they have even less on President Biden. That's completely hit a a brick wall. So I think more and more um, you're going to see the difficulty that certainly people in swing districts and swing states um, are going to have trying to convince people that we should allow these people to govern because, of course, we shouldn't. They're dangerous. They're a absolutely malicious force. And oh, by the way, unless we get a deal that involves the border, we're going to sell out Ukraine. After all of this, after two years, can you imagine leaving them high and dry, leaving them in the claws of the Russian bear? It's almost impossible to imagine. But with this crew, you've got to imagine it. Growing up, cereal was one of the best parts. You got that milk at the bottom of the bowl that tasted all sugary and all like the cereal you were eating. Well, if you look at a box of cereal today, you'll see it's filled with sugar, carbs, all kinds of stuff that's not very good for you. But I have something else for you. I recommend the variety pack of Magic Spoon. It comes in four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. My favorite is peanut butter. The variety pack has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and four to five grams of net carbs. It's only 140 calories a serving. It's high protein, 
has zero grams of sugar, and it's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So how do you get this great product? You go to magicspoon.com slash greenroom to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code GREENROOM at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, start the new year off right with a delicious bowl of high-protein cereal at magicspoon.com slash greenroom and use the code GREENROOM to save $5 off. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. And remember, you can find the link in the show notes. Hello, this is Jen Rubin again. This is Jen Rubin's Green Room. We have the perfect guest at the perfect time that is to discuss the worst catastrophe that has beset the Middle East since probably 1973 when there was a full-scale war. We're talking about the Middle East, of course. We're talking about Israel and Hamas. And we're talking about the larger problem now of U.S. forces being attacked either by Iranian forces or by Iranian surrogates. And so who should we get? We should get someone who has been there, who has been a negotiator, who has spent most of his adult life on this issue, and that is Aaron David Miller. Aaron is now a senior fellow at the Carnegie Institute for International Peace, or the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, I should say. Um, he served in the State Department and specifically in Middle East capacities for about 25 years. He's the author of multiple books. He is the expert expert in the Middle East. So without further ado, Aaron, welcome to the show. Jen, it's a pleasure to be here with you. It is a busy time in the Middle East. Um, you can certainly say that. Let's start with the retaliation for the drone strike that hit U.S. forces um, recently. Uh, the administration has explained that it kind of got confused or got the defense got mixed up because it was at the juncture of three different countries. Um, and I'm sure there'll be some investigation and full report. What do you think the administration should do and what do you think they're going to do in response? Yeah, it's a very good question. And, you know, the Biden administration is in a is in a broader bind. It confronts a strategic problem with Iran and yet it has no strategic solution. Um, I think, unfortunately, since October, you've had 160, almost 170 attacks on American Americans in Iraq, primarily in Iraq and in Syria. Um American forces, and and without even uh, accounting for the attacks that the Houthis are launching against international shipping of more than a dozen countries, the administration has has responded probably a tenth of uh, a, a tenth of those times in response. Uh, and I think it's a sort of a dangerous mix between Iranian risk readiness on one hand and American risk aversion on the other. I think that. It, there are three options for the administration. Number one is to respond disproportionately in Iraq and Syria, assuming they can identify the uh, <clears throat> militia group or groups responsible for the attack. 
A second is to identify Iranian assets outside of Iran proper. Fast boats in the Gulf, for example, uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps units uh, stationed in Damascus, Iranian personnel, Iranian assets. And the third is to uh, strike Iran directly. Now, we have not had a military encounter publicly acknowledged with Iran since April 1988, when uh, the U.S. Navy sunk 40 or 50 percent of the Iranian Navy and struck offshore oil uh, platforms belonging to Iran. That was the closest we've ever come. My guess is, and it's really only a guess, um, that they'll go for option B, which, to, which is to identify Iranian assets outside of Iran. I think that they're going to be wary. I could be surprised. I think they're going to be wary of, uh, of striking Iran proper. Now, the administration has repeatedly said it doesn't want a wider war, um, meaning um, to expand the Hamas-Israel war. Um, but this is actually not part of that war. Um, it's part of Iran's war on the region. Um, and you mentioned that we don't really have a strategic response. Um, explain a little bit what that is and why both Israel and the United States has had such difficulty coming up with a strategic response to Iran, which uses surrogate groups, which... Uh, is developing nuclear weapons, which is engaged in all sorts of um, malicious behavior. Well, in large part because the relationship uh, between the current regime since 1979 in the United States has been one of um, almost, with some exceptions, negotiations at times, both in an effort to prevent crises in the, in the Gulf and, as we both know, um, reaching the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran Nuclear Agreement. Um, to get a change in Iranian behavior, you really uh, only have one good option, and it's really not a good option, and that is to create a situation where the regime in Iran changes. Bar barring that, it seems to me that the Iranians are going to continue to pursue, with some success, their nuclear weapons aspirations. They haven't made a decision yet to uh, actually <clears throat> push uh, toward assembling a nuclear weapon, although recent reports suggest that if they did, they could, in a matter of weeks, create enough fissile material and perhaps within a month or two actually manufacture a deliverable nuclear weapon. Um, how to stop that? That's the key. How to stop Iranian proxies in Iraq and, and Syria. You know, geography here is, is destiny. We are of this neighborhood, but not in the neighborhood. And Iran's vital interests, uh, in many respects, do not coincide with ours. It may be a, a national interest of the United States to figure out a way to contain Iran. But that, it seems to me, is the best that we can hope for. And we're not very good at regime change. And I think a military confrontation with Iran, should we decide to um, strike the regime directly and, and deploy the, um, the vast amount of American military power, you could destroy all of Iran's conventional, conventional weapons um, capacity you might be able to retard its nuclear weapons capacity as well, but it would only be for a relatively short period of time, a year or two. So I don't see any good good 
uh, or definitive or comprehensive way of um, really deter really deterring the ha Iran. The hawks argue that you need to strike Iran directly to demonstrate the reality that they have much to lose if they continue to uh, to uh, challenge the United States. <clears throat> I'm not sure that's very effective. Certainly not in an election year. And, you know, the last war that was kind to Amer an American president that actually left the United States stronger at home and uh, with more influence abroad uh, and was a credit to the president who waged that war was FDR. We've had very, wars have been cruel to American presidents, <clears throat> both Vietnam and Korea and Asia, and even Bush 41, uh, first Gulf War. Um, it was waged very successfully, and yet it... Um, it didn't. It really didn't help um, boost the president's re-election prospects. So, I think the administration is rightly worried about this, um, and I think we're going to we're simply going to have to find a way, Jen, towards this entire region. I'm afraid to manage it. I spent most of my career dealing with it. I mean, it's a broken, angry, dysfunctional region. By and large, it's a region where American ideas on war making and peacemaking go to die. And at times I get the feeling that we're like some modern day Gulliver, wandering around in a region we don't understand, tied up by powers large and small, um, our adversaries who don't share our interests, and even our partners, um, I have a few in mind, who don't share our interests either, um, strict coincidence of shared interests. So, I think we have to be extremely careful and wary of um, falling into the trap and assuming that because we have such a formidable military capacity that we can somehow impose our will. I, it, it hasn't prove, proven to be the case for so many great powers over, over the centuries. In this region. And for that reason, we've had multiple presidents who have wanted to pivot away from the Middle East. The Middle East, though, gets a vote, and um, they're voting um, that we, or at least our allies, be very much concerned. Uh, what does Saudi Arabia, what do our Sunni allies, what does Israel prefer we do vis-a-vis -vis Iran? Do they want us to directly strike? Do they want us to um, take a more measured approach? I think, the, I think you, have, you have to separate the Israelis and the Saudis. Under the current Israeli government of Benjamin Netanyahu, I think he would like nothing better, frankly, than uh, uh, an effort by the United States and, and in cooperation with Israel uh, to up the ante with the Iranians for, for any number of reasons. Um, after all, you know, I um, where you stand in life has a lot to do with where you sit, and I'm not going to trivialize Israeli security concerns when it comes to Iran, particularly on the nuclear weapons side. Um, I had two Israeli prime ministers of very different temperaments, uh, Yitzhak Rabin and Benjamin Netanyahu, essentially say the same thing to me personally. You live in Chevy Chase, Maryland. We're sitting on top of a volcano. Don't lecture us about our security. I took that to heart, um, particularly when Rabin said it, because I think he understood and and really did value the U.S.-Israeli relationship. As far as the Saudis are concerned, I do not believe and have never believed that they want to become the tip of the American spear, because once again, geography is destiny. And however much they may want to spend on um, a military budget, they... 
they really are, in, in so many respects, uh, paper tigers. They're vulnerable to Iran. And right now, I think Mohammed bin Salman, a.k.a. MBS, um, wants to figure out a way to create, and has under Chinese auspices, a sort of detente with the, uh, with the Iranians, a kind of relaxation of tensions. MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, wants space and time to develop his vision 2030 to make Saudi Arabia, you know, one of the top 10, 11 countries in the world in terms of its capacity to project its its influence beyond its borders. So unlike the Israelis, uh, the Saudis may wish there were no Iran, but they're not prepared, uh, I don't think, to expose themselves to the prospects of drone and missile strikes, as occurred, as you remember, in September 2019 under the previous uh, administration headed by the presumptive Republican nominee, um, who did not respond to the cruise and, and drone strikes, which took out uh, two Saudi oil installations temporarily and, and pushed at least 5% of the world's oil production offline for several weeks. So they have a different set of calculations. It is a remarkable statement that we've just been speaking about the Middle East and have yet to get to the Israel-Hamas war, which um, I think for our audience gives some perspective on um, the seriousness of um, a possible uh, confrontation with Iran. But let's go to the Israeli-Hamas war. Um, It's been going on since October 8th. What further military aims does Israel yet to have achieved? And is each incremental day accomplishing something beyond what they've already done? I mean, they set out, I mean, it's not for nothing, by the way, that since Hamas took over and dislodged the Palestinian authorities, um, authority in, in Gaza in 2007, that for the last 16 years, the Israeli intelligence and military uh, have argued against a massive uh, Israeli strike and ground campaign in an effort to destroy Hamas. There was a reason that they argued it was a bad idea. October 7th gave them no choice. The Hamas terror surge, the willful, indiscriminate, sadistic uh, nature of the killing, the taking of hostages, 136, uh, the Israelis and Americans believe, are held by uh, Hamas and, and another um, another Palestinian group or two, 30 of whom they believe were either killed on October 7, their bodies taken to Gaza to trade, or killed in captivity um, since uh, October 7. They had no choice. People ask me all the time, well, was there a plan B for the Israelis? One Israeli said to me, on October 6th, we were one country, and October 7th, we were another country. I'm not sure um, that the Israelis had much of an alternative other than what they have tried to do. And I, I would say that against the, the, <clears throat> the, the backdrop of what we did in the wake of 9-11. Right. We ended up with the two longest wars in American history, both of which, in my judgment, were hardly worth the price that Americans paid or the, frankly, the price that, that Iraqis and Afghans paid. So in their case, we, we never had a proximity problem with Al-Qaeda. Never. The Israelis have a proximity problem with Hamas. So I don't think they had much of an alternative. The goals they identified for themselves, in my judgment, um, were mostly unattainable. 
to destroy Hamas's military infrastructure above and below ground, to kill its senior leadership, and to try to redeem as many of the hostages as possible. They may actually succeed in the latter of the 240 if they can succeed in getting 100 plus back. I think that obviously is going to be a success. Um, but the other two goals, um, after we're in the, February 7th is the fifth month of this war. The Israelis may have killed anywhere from eight to 10,000 Hamas fighters. The command structure uh, in northern Gaza has been fundamentally dismantled, but thousands of Hamas fighters remain even in northern Gaza. The leadership remains ensconced in a tunnel structure which even stunned the Israelis. 450 miles, roughly half the uh, length of New York subway system, Five over 5,000 entry points or shafts. That's probably where the top leadership, Yahya Sinwar, Mohammed Daif, Marwan Issa, the three individuals who, who planned and orchestrated the killing spree uh, on October 7. That's probably where the hostages are. Uh, I, I think that this war may well end with Hamas uh, uh, being able to say that they survived the the um, formidable onslaught by the Middle East's most preeminent military power, Israel. The leadership may well uh, survive this. The real question is, in terms of political and military goals, is this. Will Hamas still be able to exercise sovereignty in Gaza? Will it be able to shape the politics and the economy of Gaza? And I I, I'm not sure how to answer that question because I can't get my arms and mind around the proposition that if the negotiations that are currently underway um, between the Qataris, the Egyptians, the Americans, the Israelis, and Hamas succeed in producing a phased exchange for most of the hostages, uh, the first group, uh, women, elderly, the, the one or two children that Hamas still has for six weeks of quiet. Then the next group released, which would be female non-IDF personnel for another six weeks. It's hard for me to believe that Hamas would agree to the third tranche, which is the release of remaining hostages, which are males and um idea of soldiers, because they lose their insurance and they lose their leverage. So I haven't been able to sort through what Gaza looks like, uh, let's say by March or April. The Israelis have no intention of leaving uh, until some successor apparatus, regime, turnkey government, you know, government in a box is implemented to basically deny Hamas any capacity to rearm. And I find that hard to believe that we're going to be able to produce either the Palestinian Authority, certainly no multinational force. And the Arabs have been very, Arab states have been very reluctant <clears throat> to want to enter Gaza <clears throat> to do Israel's bidding and repress what might be a residual Palestinian insurgency. So I think most of 2024 is going to be devoted to sorting through the questions of what happens in Gaza once at least this phase of the war will not end. This phase of the war de-escalates. Um, so the answer is I, 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 I don't think that the Israelis will be able to claim 
that their initial goals, which probably were unrealistic, have have been implemented. And, of course, coming up with some hodgepodge of powers or reviving the PA and sending them in there becomes all the more problematic if there is still a rump Hamas group that is still there because then those people become targets. So it seems like we have a little bit of a chicken and an egg problem that we can't get rid of Hamas, um, but we can't get anybody else in there so long as Hamas is there. Uh, right. And that creates this um, ongoing war. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. The public opinion in Israel seems to have shifted. And I fully acknowledge I'm not um, objective about this because I've met with a number of um, the hostage families as uh, an increasing number of Americans have. It does seem that the Israeli public is much more willing now to accept an outcome that would not achieve these other lofty goals, but would simply recover the hostages. Is that your evaluation as well? Has has the sentiment changed um, as the hostage families have sort of become the focus, if you will, of of the war? No, I think I think your read is correct. I would only add to that that I think the public is also being made aware of the fact that you've got at least three or four pressure points that are, I think, shifting public attitudes. One is the pressure from the hostage families that have not yet been redeemed. That's number one. Number two is the rising number of Israeli casualties. Last week, the Israelis locked 24 soldiers in one day. And number three is disaffection and opposition from within the war cabinet. Gadi Eisenkot, who's a non-voting member of the war cabinet, former chief of staff, a member of Benny Gantz's National Unity Party, gave an interview that was quite explosive. He all but yes. called for new elections. The implication being that uh, Mr. Netanyahu had mismanaged mismanaged the war. That pressure is building. Uh, even though the Israelis are more horrified by the um, provisional measures of the International Court of Justice, the ICJ, the fact that for the Israelis, the fact that you're even having a conversation about genocide and accusing the Israelis of genocide is is almost it's head exploding for the Israelis. However, it, it's interesting that um, they have already started to implement at least one of the measures. You had me- significant protests from hostage families at the Karim Shalom crossing, which is now the main crossing point for entry of um, UN and other um, NGO uh, organizations. Uh, assistance to Gaza, um, the one of the provisional measures that the court uh, wanted implemented was the increase in humanitarian assistance. So I think the Israelis are taking that seriously. 
But but world opinion, the ICJ, um, the Biden administration, pressure from the Biden administration, American Congress, and Congress. All of this is combining, I think, to uh, create certain expectations on the part of the Israelis, which the administration shares that by mid-February, the more most kinetic, intensive phase of Israel's ground campaign in central and southern Gaza uh, is going to come to an end. Um, you're going to see, I hope, um, reliable and established corridors to surge humanitarian assistance into Gaza and then to begin the painful process of reconstruction, which seems very anomalous right now, given the fact that, as you put it, and you're right, that a rump sort of Hamas um, organization will continue to exist. And the Israelis, by the way, are going to be extremely careful in terms of what they allow into Gaza for reconstruction. Dual-use items, um, tent poles were put on the, literally, in order to house dislocated Palestinians, tent poles were put on the list of banned items because of their potential use in construction of what, I don't know. But the Israelis are going to take a very withholding uh, view on uh, the materials that, that will be required for reconstruction. So I think throughout most of 2024, again, Gaza is going to be the, the focus of, of, um, of Israeli policy. Should Biden get a second term, I think you might be, and, and should that second term coincide with leadership changes in Israel and, and among the Palestinian Authority, it's, it's possible to contemplate although it's hard, still hard for me to imagine right now a better pathway forward for Israelis and Palestinians. I only make one more point. On October 6, 1973, I happened to be in Jerusalem, and I watched for three weeks uh, <clears throat> a nation traumatized. Until now, the greatest intelligence failure in Israel's history, 2,800 Israelis dead. And yet within six years, I also watched Sadat, Begit, and Carter sign a full treaty of peace on the White House lawn. I only raise this because the 73 example points up what is missing now. In 73, the war lasted three weeks. The, the Americans under Henry Kissinger literally captured the diplomatic process and no, negotiated a, a, a series of disengagement agreements. You had a heroic and charismatic Arab leader, Anwar Sadat, who did something quite extraordinary, and you had a very conservative right-wing Israeli politician, Menachem Begin, who was smart enough, borrowing the line from the Godfather, to accept a, 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 an, an offer and not refuse this particular offer. Uh, and you ended up with a counterpoint to the trauma. I don't see now you're going to end up now with two traumatized communities. If you're a 15-year-old Israeli or Palestinian, you will never forget the last five months. Yes. And you have two leaders, Mahmoud Abbas, who has no intention of doing anything other than clinging to power, and Benjamin Netanyahu, who will begin testifying in his bribery, fraud, and corruption trial next month, who wants to cling to power as well. And no, there's no charismatic leader willing to, I mean, maybe the administration is clinging to the notion that Mohammed bin Salman will somehow 
offer Israeli Saudi normalization to make it all better, but I, I don't see that happening anytime soon. And I think your point about mutual trauma cannot be emphasized enough. Israel is a very small country, and there is not a soul in Israel. Um, and Gaza is a very small country, a very small area. So there is not a soul in Gaza who has not had a family member, a friend, a fighter killed, who has not had their physical life disrupted or um, made homeless by this. It is a national trauma that I, the only thing I can analogize to would be World War II, what, what would, mm. that was left in Europe, in which there is devastation, and which the trauma of a total war um, for an elongated period of time has been um, experienced. Now, you mentioned the Netanyahu government. This was an intelligence failure that makes 1973 look like genius. And in the aftermath, there was huge criticism that, first of all, the military didn't respond quickly enough. And then the entire government essentially broke down and is not providing the kind of social services that were needed for the people in the South, therefore having to rely on civil society to do that. What happens domestically in Israel? How and when does Bibi go? And what comes in its place? Is the democracy movement and slash the hostage movement turn into something that approaches a political movement or party? Or is that simply um, goes into the backdrop and we return to the very closely divided kind of Knessets that are paralyzed, essentially? Yeah, it's a very good question. Right now, there's no mechanism, formal or otherwise, to remove Benjamin Netanyahu. Likud, which is the most, uh, the largest, most well-organized, coherent, and grassroots political party in Israel, does not have a reputation of devouring its own. And the current government, which includes, which is now 64 seats plus uh, Benny Gantz's 12 from his National Unity Party, there's a comfortable margin. As long as the war continues, it's in, in its intense kinetic phase. And we haven't even talked about the North and the prospects for a regional confrontation. I mean, a real war, which we don't have now. Um, as long as that continues, it seems to me that Netanyahu will, uh, will be protected and shielded from a, uh, an intense focus on him and his responsibility and his accountability. There are only two ways to change the government right now. You could create what they call a constructive vote of no confidence, which means if you want to disassemble this government and create another government in place, you need an agreement on who would be prime minister and that, and that, that who, he or she, would need to demonstrate that they have 60 plus one seats. That's hard to imagine. Second, if, uh, and I could paint a scenario when the war winds down, Benny Gantz decides with Eisenkot and his 12 seats to leave the government, and he tells the people of Israel why he is leaving the government. At the same time, the heads of Mossad, Shin Bet, uh, director of military intelligence, chief of staff, all submit their resignations, pointing to the fact that Netanyahu alone remains the only significant politician in Israel not to, at least informally, express the fact that he was responsible for this. Then the hostage, the judicial reform, the movement that you adequately, accurately described 
engages in massive public demonstrations. Is it conceivable that four members, most likely of Likud, or perhaps Shas, would bolt from the government? It's conceivable. Um, those are the only two scenarios that you can that I could suggest. If 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 they happen, and we haven't even talked about a state commission of inquiry, which is definitely going to have to be appointed to assess responsibility for this, but that's going to take a lot of time. If that happens, uh, you if you look at the polls, Benny Gantz stands to triple his support. He would most likely be the the prime minister, and I think the course correction would be toward what I would describe to you, I mean, I think this is hope over experience, as a sort of old Likud, a right-of-center government that is high on democracy, high on the independence of the Israeli Supreme Court, high on creating a civil dialogue in Israel, high on uniting the country, pragmatic, perhaps, on the issue of how to deal with the Palestinians, but by no means... Uh, willing, ready, and able to engage in what ultimately would be required if you really did want to address the Israeli-Palestinian problem and produce a conflict-ending solution. For that, you need leaders of, of a kind that, right, frankly, right now don't exist on both sides. You need leaders who are masters of their political houses, not prisoners of their ideologies and their own politics. And you just don't have them. So um, I think that it is inconceivable that Benjamin Netanyahu, having presided over the worst terrorist attack in Israel's history, the worst intelligence failure in Israel's history, because it, 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 it involves civilians uh, massacred, and the bloodiest day for Jews since the Nazi Holocaust, how could any Israeli prime minister survive that? And there will be a political reckoning. It's just, Jen, I can't, I can't tell you, and I, you know, pithy of the Oracle of Delphi probably couldn't, reading the best of Godin trails, probably couldn't figure out under what circumstances Benjamin Netanyahu, and remember, he's on trial for bribery, yes. fraud, breach of trust, three years now in a Jerusalem district court before three judges. That trial is going to conclude probably within a year. And the option then would be conviction or plea bargain out of politics. It is an extraordinary situation making the speech, um, as you say, from a member of the war cabinet uh, who essentially said it's as big a danger to have someone in government <laughs> that we don't trust as it is to have a change of government in the middle of the war. That's an extraordinary statement. Um, now, if there were to be um, a new kind of government, as you point out, maybe we get a sort of a Begin kind of government. Um, but the longer term conflict, as you point out, remains. Um, are we past the point of no return? Are, are, it, it, it seems that at some point, it was 1973, maybe it will be October 7, that the Israeli public themselves says, we cannot live like this anymore. We cannot have one October 7 after another, even if it's every five or 10 years. That's, that's no way to live. How do we get from here to there? 
uh, again, I'll fall back on on the L word uh, leadership. Um, and you know, I mean, I, I've 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 argued since leaving government in um, January of um, of uh, two thousand and three that. The three or four conditions that you need to produce a conflict-ending solution have never all aligned, not even at Camp David in July of 2000. I, I was there. I saw a risk-ready Barack, uh, Ehud Barak, Prime Minister of Israel, confront a risk-averse Yasser Arafat and a Bill Clinton who really wanted this. I mean, in, in many respects, that summit was ill-timed, ill-advised, ill-conceived, and I regret not being able to speak my mind at the time on why I thought that summit was probably doomed to fail. But you need at least four things. You need leaders who are masters of their political houses. You need a sense of ownership. That is to say, most every breakthrough in the Arab-Israeli conflict occurred without the participation of the United States. Israelis and Palestinian leaders need to care more about doing this and they need to be motivated more by internal reasons than by external pressure. So that's the second. You need ownership. You ever heard the expression that in the history of the world, nobody ever washed a rental car? Right. It's a profound piece of philosophy. People wash rental cars. Well, people care about what they own. And it's insufficient ownership. That's the second problem. The third is you will need a third party. But you're going to need a third party that actually knows what it's doing and is willing to stay the course. And number four, you need at least some, well, more than at least some, you need an agreement on what the end state is going to be. Um, I just cannot imagine um, an Israeli prime minister standing before the Knesset and a Palestinian president before the Palestinian Legislative Council saying the following, we don't have peace, but on the core issues of this conflict, border security, refugees, Jerusalem, and end of all claims and conflict, we're done. There are no more claims to be adjudicated, no more redenta to be, to be pursued. We're finished. The end. It's hard for me to imagine hearing that. And that's the, that's the conundrum. The two-state solution is in my judgment, the least bad option, separation through negotiations. There's no way these two people are going to be able to live together happily ever after under one roof. They may have to come together after they separate and define a new conception of sovereignty, shared and separated powers, uh, which drives our own political system. Um, but it's just hard. It's just hard for me to to see what the end state is, and and when it will occur. And in some ways, we come back to where we started. It's also perhaps a fifth condition. It's very hard to imagine that occurring so long as the current Iranian regime remains, because, of course, they become the, you know, the pot stirrers. They're the ones who support Hezbollah, which we haven't even 
talked about, really. Um, they support Hamas. Um, they have the capacity to mess with shipping um, through the Gulf. Um, that, too, seems to be um, increasingly a barrier to peace. Um, if you have a different Iranian regime, perhaps some of the funding, some of the support for Hamas and for Hezbollah shrivels or um, recedes. Yeah, I mean, but again, you know, we, you know, it's interesting because the 1990s, I worked on this issue from the, from the late 70s to 2003 when I left government. The 1990s was the only decade of the last century in which there was no major Arab-Israeli war. 48, 56, 67, wait, 48, 56, 67, 73, 82. The 90s came and went without a major Arab-Israeli conflict. I would argue that's largely because of the fact that you had credible negotiations underway, both on the Israeli-Syrian and the Israeli-Palestinian tracks. You know, it's been my contention all along that had Rabin not been murdered and had uh, Bush 41 and James Baker gotten another term instead of being turned out by Bill Clinton, that we probably would have had one agreement either between Israel and Syria and Israel, uh, or Israel and the Palestinians. Because with Rabin, with Rabin on one hand and Bush 41 and Baker on the other, you had two of the three sorts of points of the triangle that you needed You'd have to have an Arab leader that was willing to stand up and cooperate and participate. Um, so, yes, Iran is a, is, a, is more than a troublemaker. I mean, clearly. Uh, whether they knew about October 7th, they cl- the timing of October 7th, they clearly, in spending $100 million a year in support of Hamas and having the IRGC train Hamas fighters okay. in Lebanon, they clearly had a role here. Um and yeah, but the reality is, you know, we can't. How do we rearrange the political furniture, right, in the Middle East? It's a problem. Well, we'll end on one other seemingly insoluble problem, um, and with a question: um, Hezbollah. Um, do you anticipate that that is going to turn into a wider conflict, or do you think um, the parties? And there's a question mark: who the parties really are. Um, are restrained enough um, not to open a second front in the war. Yeah, I mean, and again, what we see now, we don't. It, what we see now is is regional conflict in various spots: Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, across the Israel, Lebanese border, the Red Sea. What we don't have yet is a major is something the Middle East has never seen before. And I could spin it out for you: Israel, Israel and Lebanon violate the respective escalatory thresholds. Hezbollah responds with its 140,000 high-trajectory weapons, launching as many as 4,000 a day, which the Israelis have never encountered. The Israelis either preempt or counterstrike with a massive ground, sea, and air campaign, destroying Lebanese infrastructure, attacking southern Beirut. Thousands of Lebanese are killed. Hundreds of Israelis die. The Americans, having deployed one carrier strike, strike group, now deploy another, couple hundred strike aircraft, the Iranians now faced with their Lebanese ally in dire danger escalate in, in uh, Iraq and Syria. The Israelis and the Americans respond by attacking not Iranian assets outside, but inside Iran, conventionally. 
the Americans may, may, might actually take an opportunity to go after the unconventional sites. Uh, and the Iranians respond with ballistic missiles against American interests in the Gulf. That is a regional war. That is something the Middle East has never seen before. And that, I think, plunging financial markets and rising oil prices, that is something that all sides, with the exception of Hamas, do not want. I think we can still avoid that, but let's end maybe with where we started. The back door to that scenario would be a mass casualty event uh, by one of these pro-Iranian, Iraqi, uh, or Syrian militias in which not just three Americans were killed, but 20 or 30. Then the administration has no choice, I think, to respond directly against Iran, and who knows where that goes. Well, it's not a happy scene. No, it is not. But, you know, as one last point, one of my favorite rock groups is the Eagles. And you know that iconic song, Um, Hotel California. You can check out anytime you want, but you can never never leave. Exactly. And that's what the Biden administration found out, I'm afraid. Yes. On October 7th. Exactly. Um, And (laughs) when people say, what's the solution? You have to be honest with them. It's not clear that there is one. You know, we have to live with uncertainty and continued conflict. Uh, The parties in the Middle East perhaps understand it better than any other humans on the planet, that some problems do not uh, lend themselves to easy, complete solutions. Correct. Well, let's hope we at least avoid the worst of the worst. Thank you, Aaron, for uh, coming on. This was just a fascinating discussion, and uh, hopefully we'll talk again in better times and more peaceful well, thanks, times. You make it easy by asking the right questions and the flow of the conversation. I really enjoyed it. So thanks again. I did as well. Take care. And that was Aaron David Miller. I can't say that he was very optimistic, can I? But there's not anything to really be all that optimistic about. At this point, I think we have to come to terms with avoiding the worst of the worst, avoiding a all-out war between the United States and Iran, avoiding a further calamity in Israel that might involve Hezbollah and Israel, bringing some kind of closure to the war with Hamas. And yet the fundamental problem is going to remain and that is Israel and the Palestinians want the same land and they do not and will not recognize the legitimacy of the other. Now, I do not by that mean that there is a moral equivalence. There is certainly no equivalence between Israel and Hamas. And we have to acknowledge that Israel on multiple occasions, in multiple administrations, has offered to make peace with the Palestinians. They've never had the capacity to do so. They've never had the will to do so. And yet, we remain, they remain locked in a fight that continues like scorpions in a bottle. And the question is, does anyone in the Israeli government, does anyone in the Palestinian authority, does anyone in the Middle East have the capacity to pull back to figure out a mechanism by which two people can live side by side. And that's been the dilemma for all of my life. And I suspect it's going to be the dilemma for weeks and weeks to come. As Aaron confirmed in his every 
individual I've spoken to who lives in Israel, who has been to Israel, confirms we are talking about traumatized people and people who will remain traumatized for the rest of their lives. So we have to hope and pray that at the very least, there is some kind of ceasefire that allows the hostages to come home. That at least would be a saving grace of this horrible, horrible war. Well, if you found this program interesting, if you find our other programs interesting, please tell your friends. They can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever they get their podcasts. Bye-bye.